Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. What about a little story of science that can make us ponder? Well, I saw an interesting thing this week. Um, it's about near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. These, these are things which various people who report when they've had a almost died in hospital or had a really bad yeah. accident or something. Yeah. They come round. Um, they see things like a tunnel of light, sometimes multicoloured lights. They get this incredible feeling of well-being and everything's going to be all right. And various people have attributed it to sort of religious experiences and, you know, it's on the way to heaven and things like that. But some doctors have been doing some um, experiments on this. Well, basically, they've been watching people who are in really critical states in hospital. What they were doing, so they've been measuring all sorts of things about them. They know their sex, they know their age, they know what sort of injuries they've had, what sort of drugs they've been given. And they've been measuring their oxygen levels and their carbon dioxide levels and their potassium levels and their sodium levels and all sorts of things about them. Basically, been trying to study lots of things sure. and try and see what correlates with these near-death experiences. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be anything to do with religion. It doesn't even seem to be anything to do with oxygen levels or the drugs they've been taking. What it does seem to correlate really quite well with is the carbon dioxide levels in their blood. Um, for some reason, it seems that if the carbon dioxide levels get very, very high in your blood, it does something to your brain. No one really knows why. This is purely a, a correlation. And this seems to be giving these symptoms which people attribute to going to heaven and going through tunnels. Mm. Let's start off with uh, the email to uh, say hi to Scott. And Scott is, uh, has sent me an email saying, I came across a statement I was hoping you could shine some light on. It is said the laws of physics determine that when solar panels are connected together, each can only work as well as the lowest power panel in the system. Could you briefly explain why this is so? Scott, thank you very much. Dr Dave. I don't imagine it's actually to do with the power. It would be more to do with the voltages or the current, depending on whether you wire them in um, parallel or in series. If you wire them in parallel, then basically all the panels are pushing electrons from one side to the other. And if they're all the same voltage, then they'll all add up nicely and it will be fine. But if some of them are higher voltage than others, then in fact the high voltage ones can start pushing current the wrong way through the low voltage ones. And so you won't actually gain anything by connecting high-voltage panels to low-voltage panels in parallel. Similarly, if you've got lots of panels in series and they all have different currents they can produce, so that's probably uh, if they're the same voltage but different powers, So because um, power is voltage times amps, then you'll have one which will put, produce a large amount of current and other ones which can't produce that much current, so they'll actually hinder the, that flow of current. Um, and they won't actually add very much voltage to the system. So basically, if they're they're all the same voltage, you can wire them in parallel and it's fine, and if they're all the same current, you can wire them in series and it's fine, but anything else and you'll start losing, and you won't do as well. Our next question is uh, here on email, and Anne has asked, can you ask the naked scientist why it is that in summer, when the temperature is about 20 or 21 degrees Celsius, it can feel quite hot. However, in the winter, when the house is about the same temperature, you can feel cold. Morris thinks it's something to do with the sun shining in the summer, making you feel warmer. It could be something to do with the sun. Um, if you're in the sun, you can get a huge amount of heat coming into you because what the important thing isn't really the temperature, it's to do with the amount of heat which enters your body or is leaving your body. So if your body's losing a lot of heat, then you'll feel cold. If you can't lose very much heat, then you'll feel very hot. If you're losing no heat, then you'll overheat and eventually die. 
So if you're standing out in the sun, then you can get lots of heat coming into you from the sun. The sun produces about a kilowatt of energy per square meter. So if you're standing in full sunlight and it's fairly low in the sky, then you could be getting maybe sort of a quarter of a kilowatt or so, half a kilowatt, just from the sun shining on you all the time. And so then you'll feel really quite warm, even if the air temperature is very low. Um, it's also to do with evaporation because if it's the air is very dry, then lots and lots of water can evaporate off your skin, essentially sweat. And so if lots of water can evaporate off your skin, then you can lose heat very efficiently because it takes an awful lot of energy to evaporate water. And so you'll cool down, which is how sweating works. Mm. And so in the winter, because the air's been taken from outside, then heated up, it's very, very dry. Mm. And so at the same temperature, you can lose a lot more heat through sweating and also through breathing because you get water evaporating in your lungs. And so you'll cool down a lot better in a very dry atmosphere, a very damp one. It's also why if you go to somewhere very, very hot and damp like India during the monsoon season, mm. it can be 30, 30 degrees centigrade and it, you can feel really, really uncomfortable. Similarly, in this country, when it gets to 30 degrees centigrade, it's incredibly uncomfortable because it's incredibly humid yes. and you just feel horrible. But if you go to a desert at 30 degrees centigrade, it's actually quite comfortable because your body can lose the heat by sweating very efficiently and you're happy. Mm. A question from Dave and Berry. Before we have a torrential downpour, the clouds change from white to grey, and when it's stormy, the sky turns from blue to grey. Why is this? OK, the colour of a cloud isn't really set. Um, it's more to do with how it's lit. If you've got a cloud and the sunlight is shining from behind you onto the cloud, then lots and lots of that sunlight is going to reflect back into your eyes, so the, sun, the cloud is going to look very, very bright. But if the sun is behind the cloud, then the sunlight... Most of it bounces off in the surface a few metres of the cloud and very little of it gets through to you, so it looks really dark. So if the cloud is directly above your head, then the sunlight's probably going to be trying to shine through the cloud, so the cloud is going to look quite dark and grey. Whereas if the cloud is off to the side, one side or the other, and you get little puffy clouds that like you get in the summer, then the clouds are probably going to be lit from the side and they're going to look really bright because mm. more light bounces off into your eyes. Mm. This one is from Mike, who says, Dr Dave, I watched the classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Could a Nautilus submarine like the one in the film actually be built in the 1860s? What Could a submarine have been built in the 1860s? Yes. Um, I think they were just about starting to get hold of electrical technology. You could probably have stored some energy through some other means, compressed air or something like that. Um, steam engines wouldn't have lasted very long. You could even have heated up something very hot and run a steam engine for you know, a few half an hour or so from a very, very hot piece of iron, and you could have run a submarine for a bit. Could you have built a submarine which could keep stay underwater for hundreds of miles? No, there was no way of storing that much energy get, um, without getting to up the surface and breathing oxygen. And it wasn't really until um, we invented nuclear power in the 50s that you could build a submarine which could stay underwater for a long time. Now, Dr Dave, let's have a look here. Um, Dom in Newmarket would like to know, how do TV signals work? Conventional analogue TV signals, um, basically the way an old-fashioned TV works, one of the ones, the big deep ones, works, is there is a beam of electrons which yep. fires from the back, comes up to the front, and when it hits, there's little blobs of things called phosphors on the front. When the electrons hit them, they make them glow. So the TV works by moving this sort of beam of electrons across the TV, scans it in lots and lots of lines, 625 lines yep. on our TV, um, and it changes the amount of electrons firing all the time so it can turn on and off these phosphors. And so you need a signal which can control this. 
So basically, um, there's two different parts of the signal. One of them is the total brightness, so basically what you get for a black and white signal. So there's one signal which controls the overall brightness, so the amount of all the red, green and blue colours, and so that signal changes as the beam scans across your TV, mm-hmm. and that controls the beam, and so the brightness changes. Yeah. And there's another signal which controls the colour, so the amount of red, blue and green and that's on a separate frequency. Then there's a third separate channel radio signal sends the audio signal just like the is basically the same as a radio signal which you're listening to at the moment. And all those three are received by your TV set at the same time and build your picture and the sound. Digital TV is um, works on a completely different principle. Um, you basically turn it, take a picture and convert it into a load of numbers, so each part of the picture has a different brightness, and that's got a different number. You can do lots of clever maths on it, to, so you don't need as many numbers to s- transmit the information. Mm-hmm. So if a part of your TV picture stays the same for a long time, it won't bother sending that again and again. Mm. And there's a computer in the digital TV box, which puts it all back together again and creates a picture on your TV. Um, One from the text here, Dave. Was the chain link invention a British idea all those years ago? I'm not quite sure how far it goes back. I'm guessing he probably means chain link fencing, um, which apparently was invented in Britain. Um, In fact, in this part of the world, in Norwich. Wow. By a company who was um, originally making cloth weaving machines and they built a um, wire weaving machine which made chain link fences effectively. Apparently a company called Barnard Bishop and Barnard. Now, Dave, Agnes in Braintree. Um, My father-in-law was in the Battle of the Somme and he was gassed and this resulted in him going blind for three days. I wanted to know how is this possible to go blind for a space of time and then all of a sudden go back to being able to see. He was very lucky. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know the specifics of it. I would have thought it was probably to do with your body slowly repairing itself like any other injury. If you cut yourself, your body slowly repairs itself. If they're very serious, then your body can't repair itself. But for minor injuries, I, I know for scratches and things, it will repair itself slowly. It could, I mean, there's various ways of going blind. One thing could be that just the skin around your eye swells up so much that you can't open your eyes, in which case you can't see. Uh, and that, the swelling will eventually go down and you can open your eyes and you can see. But I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there were ways of damaging the nerves at the back of your eye or some other structures in your eyes which would um, recover slowly after enough time mm. and the bodies of incredible things if you're enjoying ask the naked scientists then you might like to check out the naked scientists our regular roundup of the world's best science each week we take a look at the latest science news talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too so make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientists.com slash podcast. Let's go to um, our email again now. This one is coming from Samantha. Why can we see clouds at night? I guess that is a strange, is interesting one, isn't it? Because the sky, at night the sky is brighter than yep. the ground. Yep. And so you'd expect to only be able to see the silhouette of a cloud. But it basically will just depend on where the light's coming from. If the moon is very low in the sky, for example, then the moon is a source of light almost identical to the sun, same size, not nearly as bright as the sun, but it's a similar sort of light. So I've seen really beautiful um, clouds at night with the moon sort of shining up on under them. Yeah. And so they look all silver and, and yeah. sort of glowing. 
And similarly, streetlights can produce enough light to shine up on clouds so you can see them. So if there's enough light shining up onto a cloud, you can see the cloud itself. If not, you'll just see the silhouette. Ian says if he cuts his arm and it starts bleeding, it clots almost instantaneously. What exactly causes this and how does it know when it needs to clot? Is it something to do with exposure to air? I think there are various things which can cause blood to clot and the clotting process is horribly complicated, which I'm afraid I'm not an expert on. I think oxygen can trigger it in some cases. Other things which can trigger it is that the edges of a wound release compounds which activate things called platelets in your blood which then trigger the whole clotting process and all sorts of chemicals come in which causes the, all the blood cells to stick together and stop the leak. I'm sure Chris will give a far more detailed and complete answer than that but I'm afraid that's all you're going to get from me. Patty Lowestoff cleaned his pond out today and um, no goldfish but lots of newts pulled some jelly stuff out of the pond and wanted to know if he thought it could be newt spawn. Do newts spawn? Newts do spawn, but apparently they spawn not as a great big lump of jelly like things like frogs, um, and toads. frogs do mm. and toads, those great big long strings of eggs. They spawn in individual eggs and they tend to stick them to the underside of leaves in pondweed and things, so they're hidden, so um, things can't find them as easily and eat them. Right. Um, so if you're getting great big masses of jelly, it's probably unlikely to be newt spawn. Hmm. This one is from the email, and it's from Jason, who listens in Singapore. Hi, Jason. Um, why are some types of steel not attracted to magnets? OK, to understand that, you have to understand why things are attracted to magnets at all. Various atoms, quite a lot of atoms, are called paramagnetic. That means that each individual atom is a, a little magnet... And if you apply a magnetic field to them, they'll line up with the magnetic field and they'll be into, and they'll be attracted to it weakly. Um, but because the atoms tend to be arranged in, ra- in random directions, that attraction is very, very weak. The things which we think of as magnetic are actually ferromagnetic, sort of like iron. And that's because due to some strange quantum mechanical effects inside the material itself, all these little atomic magnets tend to want to line up um, one next to each other and all point in the same direction. And therefore you get quite large areas of um, magnet and those will I- interact with a, another magnet very strongly and it will be attracted to it. And if you put a magnet near them, the areas which are pointing in the same direction as the magnet will tend to get larger and the other areas will get smaller. You get huge areas and the piece of steel will turn into a magnet and be attracted to your magnet. However, if you add certain other materials to your steel, um, especially stainless steel. Stainless steels have actually got quite a large amount of other metals in them, things mm. like chromium and manganese. And if you add lots and lots of another metal into the steel, you can break up this effect whereby all these little atomic magnets want to line up in these areas called domains. And therefore it stops being a ferromagnet and it's just a paramagnet and it isn't attracted to a magnet very strongly and we don't call it magnetic. Trucker Martin is asking if um, he's got 10 litres truck engine, how many litres of air goes through it at 1,500 RPM? He came up with 7,500. Are you anywhere near? Yeah, that does sound quite reasonable because... Every time the engine goes round, two of the cylinders, if you've got a four-cylinder engine or half the cylinders, are going to be sucking air in. 
um, the, the full displacement. And then as you go around the second time, the other half will suck air in and the first half will cause it to have an explosion and drive the engine along. So it's going to be half of 1,500 RPM times 10 litres, so 7,500. However, it does get more complicated as ever. Well, it would do. Um, if it was normally aspirated engine, then things like the throttle will impede the air flowing in. So you're not going to, it's not going to completely fill up in the time it's got unless you've got the throttle completely pressed down the throttle actually works by impeding the air getting into the engine that reduces the amount of fuel that can burn and so you reduce the amount of power so the amount of air is going to change um also if you've got superchargers on the engine so, so it's never going to be as much as um seven and a half thousand liters in a minute um if it's normally aspirated but if you've got superchargers or turbos what they do is they squash extra air in at higher pressure so you can get more power out of the same size engine and so it could be significantly more than that if you double the pressure of the air going in then you get twice as much air in so it rather depends on the exact design of your engine i'm afraid now, Annie has sent um, a text in to say that um, a while ago there was lots of excitement about clothing with micro-wired effects powered by movement, generating electricity. It's all gone quiet. What's happened? I think there are probably still people doing research on that sort of thing. I would have thought the critical problem is that it'd be quite easy to make something which works for a day or even a week. But the way we treat clothes, we bash them around, we batter them, we throw them in a washing machine which grinds them against one another. Making it be able to survive repeated washing is going to be very, very difficult. So I think there are people working on it. And also I think the problem is that the amount of energy you can generate is quite limited. So compared to the amount of energy you can store in a modern lithium-ion battery, um, it would make mo- the amount of energy you're getting from yourself. So it would make your life significantly harder work. It would keep you fit, I suppose, if it was going to extract several, especially tens of watts of energy out of you. All right. This has come from um, Andrew Simmons, who's perplexed. He says, I live in sunny California, and over here in the States, our electric plugs have two or three prongs. I'm told the third is for the ground, but it seems to work without it fine. So what's the story there, Dave? Well, for the plug to work, all you need is the two prongs. There's the live and the neutral, and the electricity flows from the live to the neutral and back again. It's alternating current, so it's flowing one way, then back, then one way, then back. And that's all very well. The problem comes if there is a fault with your device. So if you've got a metal case device and your live wire happens to fall off inside and it touches this metal case, all of a sudden the metal case is now at 240 volts or in say it's 110 volts. And if you touch your device, you get an electric shock. And also you can get nasty um, shorts. So if then this touches a water pipe, you get a huge amount of current flowing. It'll keep on flowing and there's nothing to, get, to go wrong. Uh, nothing to stop it. Um, so the earth wire is a third wire. It's a safety wire. Basically, it's attached to any metal parts of your device which aren't supposed to be electrified, which means that now if the um, live wire touches the case of your device, um, because it's attached to earth, lots of electric current will flow to earth. Um, you get huge current. You'll get a basic short circuit. This will cause the your fuse somewhere. In Britain, there's one in every plug in the States. I, I think there must be some fuses somewhere, I guess, in the fuse box. Let's the fuse hope box so. to, yeah. Otherwise, you can get lots of fires. But it will cause the fuse box to um, blow, the fuse to blow, and you're safe and you haven't been electrocuted. Um, so, yeah, it's be- and also um, you don't, don't get too much current flowing through a wire and it overheats mm. and catches fire. Mm. So, yes, it's a safety thing. You don't need it except in order to survive if something goes wrong. Spooky stuff. Dave, um, Mark 
has said, um, he said, uh, I hope you can help. I want to use an electromagnet to suspend 185 times 185 times 185 millimetre steel cube weighing approximately 50 kilos and then swing it like a pendulum as part of an exhibition. Right? Sounds exciting. It does, doesn't it? Obviously, this is a bit of a health and safety nightmare. So it would be good um, to have the maths, if at all possible, to prove that it will work. So in that case, then, can magnets be used in place of wires for a pendulum? How scary is that? Mark, thank you for um, for your question. <laughs> it does sound like a great idea. Um, in the simple case, the answer is no. Um, as a mathematician worked, phys- mathematician physicist worked out a while ago that you can't build a system just out of permanent magnets mm. and um, bits of iron, which is stable. So always that your lump of iron is either going to get attracted to your magnet or it's going to get repelled by or it's going to fall off it and so keeping it at the right distance is incredibly difficult and it's it is impossible and eventually mm. it'll fall off and either smash into your magnet or fall onto the floor. Um, however, if you, so, you can get around this by having some way of measuring the distance to your um, lump of steel, and then altering the current through the magnet. So, if it gets too close, you reduce the strength of the magnet, and if it gets too far away, you have to increase the strength of the magnet. This is, of course, more things to go wrong. So, the health and safety nightmare gets even larger. Um, also, the distances over which you can support it. Um, are probably quite limited. I know even with the the modern, incredibly strong, those neodymium boron permanent magnets, which you probably could get an electromagnet as strong as that, but not much stronger. Um, you, you have difficulty attracting something more than sort of um, six or eight inches away. And so if you wanted to support it in the middle of a giant great device, then it would be difficult. You could possibly, you, you could use it for a clock, in fact, um, by possibly having... Rather than it swinging like a pendulum, you could have it oscillating up, up and down, um, which you could build a clock based on that sort of principle. You could do something quite cunning and quite nice. Um, but I, I, th- I think if you if you want something which looks like a clock with a um, lump of steel just flying in midair on a great big device, I think you'd have you'd be lucky. Now, Dave Keith says that he heard an old wives' tale of a remedy for pain by hanging a key over the area. Um, with pain in the case of his neck. He did this and lo and behold it worked. I wanted to know how is it possible that some metals placed on the body can help with the healing process could this be a placebo effect? Um, Dave, what do you reckon? Um, Again, it's not my area of expertise it could very easily be a placebo effect. Things like pain are very dependent on how you think about them if if you think they're going to get better, they quite often do, um, which is a placebo effect. And therefore, if you take a, a sugar pill um, with nothing else in, else in it, like um, a homeopathic remedy, if you think it's going to work, it often will do. Um, the other thing it could be is it could be affecting the way you stand. If you've got a, a key poking into you, it could make you stand slightly better or slightly differently, which stops the somehow stops the pain in the neck. All creative stuff. Now then, one last one here from John. He says, um, vultures are classified as birds of prey. Is this fair? Because I was under the impression that they don't kill. That's right. They just wait until dinner's ready and then they swoop down and just go for it. So, Dr Dave, what do you reckon you have Um, starting from now? I guess quite a lot of it is to do with um, what they're related to. So a, a vulture could easily, I'm, I don't know for sure, but it could possibly have evolved from another bird, something which does kill. It's got the right shape, 
beak for bird of prey, so I'm guessing they probably just define them as birds of prey because they're a lot closer to that than anything else. Other birds of prey also will scavenge um, carrion as well. If there's free food, why not eat? That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>